Our reading tonight is a continuation of our reading through the Gospel of Matthew together in evening worship. We are in chapter 14 tonight, verse 22 through 33. Congregation, let us pray. Our God and Father, now upon the occasion of your word being read publicly, we ask that you would bless the reading, that you would bless the preaching that follows, grant grace and mercy in the pulpit and in the pew. Grant us to hear the voice of the master and recognizing his voice to come out and follow him, to be cared for by him, to be shepherded by him, to set and rest before him, to be fed by him. Oh, gracious Lord, we do pray that you would give us wonderful things tonight through the ministry of your word. Grant the ministry of your spirit, illuminating your word into our souls and fastening upon us your truth. We ask that it would not be taken from us. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the Son of God. This is God's word. Beloved, it is a wonderful thing for us to see how our Lord Jesus trains his disciples here, leading them into and through all the lower levels of fear, right up into the highest level of fear, for the purpose of overcoming their fear. It's a master class and student training. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Everything Jesus did on the lake that night, he did to create the situation where those words could be spoken by him with meaning and context and possibility. but not just spoken. Jesus wanted those words to be more compelling to his disciples than anything else they knew. Jesus spoke those words to create 
within his disciples a strength of heart that was not rooted in their abilities or even rooted in a pleasant and sudden change of their circumstances. Jesus spoke to create a strength of heart in them rooted in both their apprehension of his divinity and their apprehension of his unfailing love. I want him to say these words to my spirit when I'm 60 minutes away from my last breath. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. This is his ministry of love to us. Now remember, this is now the second night of boat trauma for the disciples. Jesus took them through something like this before. Back in Matthew 8, we heard about a storm at sea where Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat. In that incident, Jesus rebuked the winds and the sea, and all was suddenly calm, placid. But here, now in Matthew 14, Jesus does not make the sea calm. The text says, while Peter is walking on the water, he saw the wind, verse 30. This is the same wind that's been beating against his boat for hours. It hasn't changed. The water is still rough. And the text then strictly says the wind only ceased after Jesus and Peter got into the boat. Verse 32. This means what Jesus is calling out in verse 27. He calls out while the waves are still beating against them. And the wind is still driving against them. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. In this case, it is the presence of Jesus and the word of Jesus that is to overcome their fears. Jesus does not change their difficult situation this time. Or does he? (laughs) Isn't his presence the change they need? Isn't his word the change they need? Now, before we work on that point any further, we first need to see that this whole incident was orchestrated by the master for his students. And take this as a warning. (laughs) It's, It's a very good warning. This is your master. He is orchestrating lessons in your life. He is treating you as a student He is bringing you to things that you yourself would never have signed up to be brought to. If you walked up to 10 options, you would always take plan easy street. (laughs) But Jesus comes over and crosses out your name and walks over to the other clipboard, plan difficult, and he signs you up. Because he intends to give you something that you cannot obtain on easy street. He intends to give you a faith that is inconquerable by the trials and afflictions of a cursed world. So, let's take a peek. The whole incident orchestrated by the master for his students. And Matthew shows this to us with the opening words of verse 22. It says, 
Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Jesus wants to get the disciples alone without him on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. They likely showed some resistance to this idea. (laughs) No, no, you come with us. No, no, you guys go. No, no, you come with us. No, no, you go. Go. Okay. The text says Jesus made them get into the boat. The only thing missing there are handcuffs. Jesus is asserting his authority and will. He is going to make this happen. The Greek word for made in verse 22, not the usual word for made. The word used here is actually quite rare, used only nine times in the New Testament. It is usually translated as either compel or force. The King James Bible actually translates this verse as Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship. Now that's getting closer to handcuffs. The point is the Lord has orchestrated all that is going to happen in the middle of the night. So in verse 22, Jesus is doing something unusual, pushing his disciples away. He is separating them from himself. He wants them on the water where they have skill. Oh, yeah. There's some fishermen in this boat. They have knowledge. They have competence. But this time, when things get outside of their control, don't you love that feeling? (laughs) When things get outside of their control, outside of their comfort level, Jesus is not going to be in the boat with them this time. Neither is he going to fix the problem quickly this time. Now, before we go further with all of that, let's not overlook the relationship between Jesus and the crowds. Note how Jesus stays with the crowd after he has dismissed the disciples. He does not leave while the crowd remains. On one hand, this is a kind of assurance from our Lord toward the crowd. It demonstrates his commitment to their needs. He has just fed them, remember? Loaves and fishes. He knows that their desire is for him. And that desire they have for him is a mixed bag. Some of their desire is worldly. They want him to become a bread machine. Some of their desire is godly. But he stays with them. And he gives himself to them generously. But there is a more practical benefit. Him staying to dismiss the crowd is a way for Jesus to guarantee that he can go up into the mountain without anyone following him. He waits till they're all gone, nobody around to see where he goes, and off he goes. Up he goes, the text says. Up on the mountain to pray. He is finally alone. Remember, he wanted to be alone earlier that day. That's why he took a boat. He's finally alone at night on the mountain, and his attention can now, his attention can now be undivided. A long refreshment lies before him. A long refreshment through fellowship with his father. Several hours of prayer in the night. Stretches out before him in the darkness. 
And in many ways, this time alone in prayer is going to be better to him, better to him than sleep. Have you ever had that experience? That prayer is better to you than sleep? How greatly our Savior desired this mountain retreat with his Father. Now he has arranged for its every part, and he enters into it. As Calvin said, we know how easily the slightest interruptions destroy the ardor of prayer, or at least make it languish and cool. Christ was in no danger of this fault, yet he intended to warn us by his example that we ought to be exceedingly careful to avail ourselves of every assistance for setting our minds free from all the snares of the world that we may look direct towards heaven. Our Lord is teaching us how to pray. So here then before us is one of the best settings for prayer. Alone. Alone. We should learn to pray alone. It is not the only way to pray. We are not required to always pray alone. But it is a very profitable way to pray. Or else our Lord would not be doing it. (laughs) And he would not have said, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 6. Jesus had a habit of praying alone. Now, this is the first time, however, that Matthew mentions him ever praying alone. But Mark mentions it in Mark 1.35, and Luke mentions our Lord praying alone three different times. Luke 5.16, 6.12, and 9.18. Now, when we get to verse 24, things start to get very interesting. Jesus is alone, praying in the peace and quiet of isolation, surrounded by this immovable mountain. Landscapes of the mountain are all around him, and they are quiet landscapes. Jutted boulders, not speaking, not moving because of the wind. Jesus is in this idyllic setting under the cover of darkness. He could hear his own breathing. But several miles away, verse 24 says... In the midst of the raging sea, there is no peace, no quiet for the disciples. They are not enjoying God as Jesus is. But Jesus, from wherever he is, he knows their predicament. He sees their troubles. That's why verse 23 about his prayer goes into the same sentence in verse 24 about their being in the boat. Jesus knows where his disciples are, knows the trouble they're in. In fact, Jesus has led them into their troubles, and he has never taken his eye off of them. Jesus knows exactly where to find his disciples in the midst of the sea, in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. He just shows up right there without GPS. For us, it would be like finding a needle in a haystack in the dark. But for Jesus, these men in the boat have been a lively image that has never actually passed from his view. He's always had his eye on them. Verse 25 says, He came walking on the sea. 
Now, this was not only our Lord coming as a timely help, but this was also his coming and bringing with him privileged revelation for his friends. Remember what he said in John 15? He said to the disciples, I don't call you my servants, my slaves. I call you my friends because I am showing you what my father is doing. So they're, again, in one of like the worst nights of their life, and it's going to turn out to be one of the highest nights of privileged revelations that the children of God have ever received. Good things happen in prison when Jesus is your God. Good things happen in trouble when Jesus is your Lord. Psalm 121, 4, here's the revelation. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 77, 16, here's the revelation. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Jesus is showing his disciples that he is Yahweh. He is the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He is the Almighty who led his people out of Egypt through the chaos of the sea, never forsaking his people, always with them as their God, That is who their friend Jesus is, their master, the one they are soon to call Son of God. Now, when the disciples thought about all of this later, they would recall that it was indeed Jesus who commanded them to get into the boat. How do we know that they would recall that? Because Luke wrote it down. (laughs) He constrained them to get into the ship. It's exactly how it was recalled. They recalled that it was Jesus. That Jesus commanded us to get into the boat. He set all this up. Our Savior did it. He commanded them to get in, and that's what pushed them into a chain of events that led to his appearing on the sea. To this very point, Matthew Henry said, It is no new thing for Christ's disciples to meet with storms in the way of their duty and to be sent to a sea when their master foresees a storm. But let them not take it as an unkind thing. What he does they know not now, but they shall know hereafter that Christ designs hereby to manifest himself with the more wonderful grace to them and for them. In other words... It is our obedience to Jesus that often brings us into trouble, not out of it. Young people, this is a great excuse for your parents. Why are you in so much trouble all the time? I'm obeying Jesus. (laughs) That's exactly right. 
Jesus will get you in trouble. Not sinful, lawless troubles, but troubles with the ways of the world, trouble with affliction and pain and difficulty. He will get you into trouble. But it is in this very trouble we are met by Jesus with wonderful graces. Listen, would you have no troubles and know Jesus less? Trust Jesus less? See less of his majesty? See less of his glory? See less of his dominion? Have little faith? Would you be happy with all of that less and little just to have no troubles? Or would you have all the troubles Jesus has for you and have all the graces that go with them? Would you not want a great heart that could even say what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. Would you sign up for that? Because that's not easy street clipboard A. Beloved, what kind of Christian do you want to be? Do you want to be one who does not rely on yourself, but on God who raises the dead? And being such a Christian opens up a hundred new vistas of things that you would do and places you would go and things you would say all in obedience to your king? Or do you, are you okay with relying on yourself as long as it keeps you out of trouble. I have good news for you. Nobody's asking you. Jesus is going to sign you up. He's already signed you up. Now we come to verse 26. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. Now, this is the common fear of men in these times. They thought they were seeing a nocturnal apparition, a demon in human form. They heard all about these things from those who lived on the seas. They were terrified because demons had superiority over men in power and in strength. If a demon was coming toward them, they surely were marked out for mischief and hurt, and they were hated by the greater being. The disciples have now been brought brought to peak fear. That's what verse 26 is. All of their misplaced notions of the world, all of their misplaced notions of mortality, all of their misplaced notions of divine tenderness, they are all misfiring, and they are all sparking and smoking and exploding within them. The chaos of the sea is now inside. They are raging themselves. 
But suddenly they hear these words. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Those words are absolutely meaningless if Jesus Christ has not been raised. If there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then he is not Lord. He has no dominion. He has no authority. He has no power. He is just a fairy tale as good as a fairy tale of a dwarf with a red nose. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, this is foolishness. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let us leave now and go to the pub. But Jesus Christ has been raised. And so when he says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to obey. I'm ready to drive through the bad neighborhood to bring a a soup bowl to the bad house. I'm ready to risk having a gun put in my face. I'm ready to get in my car again and drive on these Nina highways that I just learned last week. This stretch of 41, I'm sorry if I'm breaking news, it's the most dangerous stretch of the highway stretch that runs through Nina for accidents. I'm ready to get on it again to do the ministry of the gospel. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. What's the worst thing that could happen to me? I go to Jesus. (laughs) I fall in the arms of the one who, who loves me more than I've ever loved anyone. What's the worst thing that could happen? That I learn to rely less on myself? Bring it on. Now, that sounds almost cheeky and foolish. But there's a great boldness in taking heart. It's almost cheeky and foolish to say, take heart in the midst of a storm. But the Lord says, take heart. So their master has come to them. Their friend is walking toward them on the sea. The one who knows their names. The one who knows where they are. He is before them, greater than all the forces of nature. He is before them, greater than all the forces of the invisible world. He is before them. All of their notions about demons and nocturnal apparitions died that night. When they see Jesus walking towards them on the sea, that would scare off any demon. And it did, didn't it? What did the demoniac say in the tombs of the Gerizines? Son of man, what do you do with me? Let me be thrown into the pigs, he said. Their master comes. He is before them. He is for them. What we see here is the same species of what Paul said in Romans 8.38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Peter says, can I, can I do that? Look at the text. Lord, if it is you... Command me to come to you on the water. Now, this fits Peter's profile quite perfectly, doesn't it? He always likes to be the first guy. He always raises his hand first. He always jumps first. 
and finds out later that he, well, he needed more than he thought he had. Peter has a desire, and beloved, it is a lawful desire, or else Jesus would not have said come. There, is, there are five sermons in Peter's one question, but you're just getting a snippet in one. But here it is. Peter's desire was lawful. And what was his desire? To share in Jesus' power, to share in Jesus' authority, to share in Jesus' dominion, to share in the very things that Jesus will say you have a share in. He says that at the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me, therefore go. Go where? Go into the nations. Those are bad neighborhoods. Go. Remember how I told you to get in the boat? I constrain you to go. You'll be fine. Take heart. Peter desires to share in what is going to be his in the fullness of his redemption after the cross. But it is Jesus' power, not Peter's power. Peter, in his humility, does not make a move without permission. He waits to be bidden. That's a good lesson for every Pentecostal charismatic. And us. Jesus says, come. By saying come, our Lord is affirming Peter's faith, but he is not affirming the constancy of Peter's faith. Peter's faith is weak. The Lord already knows it. But Peter doesn't know it. And by saying come, Peter will soon know what he didn't know about his faith. And this discovery the things that we learn about ourselves that God already knew is often the design of God in granting our ill-conceived plans because he loves us so very much. He does not want us to be left in the ignorance of our own person. So Peter steps out on the water, and there's interesting disputes about the Greek of the text here. How many steps did Peter take? Did he even get one full step? Some say no. <laughs> Whatever the matter may be, Peter's faith weakens as he looks at a subordinate power, not the power of all power. He looks at the wind. And when he looks at the subordinate power, he becomes afraid and he begins to sink. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Beloved, everything that's happening in this text tonight, everything that happened on that sea that night, is to strengthen your faith, to make you a great heart. And what does a great heart do? A great heart goes wherever the master says to go. A great heart doesn't say, well, that's kind of dangerous. I'm not going to do that. A great heart obeys and does not fear what obedience will lead to. What if it means obeying Christ so firmly in your life that you lose friends, that you lose family, 
Jesus is telling you right now, you will be blessed in a way you will never be blessed with disobedience. You will not gain what you think you're going to gain by disobedience. You will only gain what you could not imagine. It will be so abundant and good by taking heart and going. Let us pray and prepare for the supper. Father, we thank you for your word. Continue to bless us at the table and strengthen our heart. Grant us to indeed know that our Savior Jesus, even tonight, reaches out and takes us by his strength so that we would not be left alone in our ignorance of our own soul, but that we would find again that our faith is small and that only he can fill it and strengthen it and complete it as we see him more clearly in his power, in his love, in his mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.